Worship styles have been a source of conflict within the church for a long time. Uh, many of us remember the worship wars of the 80s and 90s when the church began to move from a traditional form of worship to a contemporary form of worship, and people began to leave one church and go to another church because of worship style. Hymns began to be traded in for worship choruses, and the organ was traded in for drums and guitars, and generally generalizing, the younger generation was longing for this new style of worship, and the older generation was wanting to keep their regular style of worship, the hymns and the organ, and so the battle began. And the battle, in essence, continues today, but it takes on a little different form because in reality, the worship courses and the worship style of service that maybe some of you grew up in the 80s and 90s, maybe it was more contemporary, is now out of date to the worship styles that are here in the 21st century. For some of us, we're, we probably go, well, how is it different? It's guitars and drums and choruses. <laughs> that's what it was back then, and that's what it is now. And it's like, no, if you're a younger person, you, you, there is a difference. So, the, you know, what, what, what is the church supposed to do? My home church which has been around for 150 years, they had a problem probably about 100 years ago with worship. And that problem was, do we switch from a service that is all done in Swedish or do we move to English? It was monumental, let me tell you. Of course, I know some of you may find this hard to believe, but I wasn't there during that time. Uh, today, worship styles impact where we go to church. And there's all different kinds of worship styles. There's the liturgical high church style of worship, which has a lot of pomp and circumstances. Uh, the, the pastor or the priest has a robe and a stole over them. There is liturgy that is read and hymns that are sang, there's up and down, and it is all very directed and very ordered. We still have traditional styles of worship with hymns and scripture reading, and still very controlled and very orderly, and as I mentioned, the contemporary style. But then there's even the charismatic Pentecostal style, which seems to be not just choruses, but much more free-flowing and spirit-led. Even some of them have dancing in the aisles. And if the pastor or the worship leader feels like changing up the order of the service in the midst, it's really okay. And in fact, in the charismatic church, it is celebrated because for many people, it's a picture that that service is being spirit-led. Then there are the black gospel churches. Let me tell you, if you've ever been there, right, that'll, there's dancing going all kinds of times, and there's lots of verbal back and forth with the preacher, and the preacher gets into this sing-songy thing that I'm not even going to try to attempt to 
try and imitate because I ain't got the rhythm. <laughs> Let's just be straight up with you. Yeah, right? Many years ago, Terry and I were, one of our mission trips that we got to go on, we went to Mexico, and on a Sunday we were going to a Pentecostal church in Mexico, and there was a warning before we went. One was this, church never starts on time, and second, it could go two or three hours. Because you go, you see, and whenever, you know, there's enough people there, they start. It may be 15 minutes late, it may be half an hour late, but they, they'll get going when they get going. It's not that big of a deal. It's Sunday, it's church day, we're together. There was a guarantee, though, and that guarantee was that there was food at the end that kept you there. But the worship would start, and in this church at least, the worship kept going until the pastor got up. And if the pastor didn't feel like you were ready, he didn't get up. And then he would get up, and he would preach, and he would preach, and he would preach until he was done. Didn't matter if it was 30 minutes or 40 minutes or an hour, he preached until he was done. And then the worship team would get up, and they would worship a whole bunch more. Now, other of you, some of you are sitting here listening to that and going, oh, wow, that would just drive me crazy. I mean, you know, it's bad enough that, you know, Brad keeps us here for 70 minutes or whatever. Other of you are going, oh, that's my dream. I'd love to be in a place like that. Once again... It's a reminder that our worship styles are a source of contention. I mean, even here at Crossroads, I hear it from time to time. There are some of you that long to have the freedom to get up and dance and move around. It's kind of fun to see the kids flipping the little banners around here. And, but those of you who want to get up and dance and move around, you feel judged by others because... You know, you're dancing and moving around. And then there are those of you that just want to sit in your pew during worship time and don't you dare ask me to do anything that involves movement. And you feel judged by those who want to get up and dance around because maybe you're not spiritual enough or whatever it may be. It's a source of conflict. The text that we are reading from today, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, um, Paul addresses what happens as people gather for worship. How do they gather? And what does it look like and mean to gather in an orderly way? The irony is, as I've been just laying out here, is as we will see. Order is really in the eyes of the beholder. Because for some of you, order is, let's structure that baby. Step one, step two, step three. The sermon is no longer than 20 minutes or whatever. For some of you, order is, yeah, let's, let's just let the Spirit do what the Spirit's going to do. So who's right? So join with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to start reading in verse 26. Paul says then this, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together? 
Each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregation of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If you want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the Word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they with themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. This is a continuation of what we talked about last week and Paul was addressing, and there are really, for me, in this passage, two main points. The first point is found in verse 26, and you go down to the last sentence there, it says, everything must be done so that the church may be built up. This, this is exactly what we were talking about last week. And if you remember, you know, Paul talked about starting in verse 1 of chapter 14, pursue love, earnestly desire the things of the Spirit, especially that you may prophesy. And the reason why we are to do that is when we prophesy or when we desire the things of the Spirit, people are strengthened and encouraged and comforted. And not only that, if an unbeliever comes into the place where the Spirit is moving and people are speaking words over people, it, Paul says at the end of our message last week that the unbeliever will fall to their knees and repent of their sin and they will say, surely the God must be in this place. So, why... As verse 26, everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Again, the key here is being built up. And the ironic thing is, is that there are five other times earlier in 1 Corinthians that we've gone through when Paul says, build up the church. Why do we do things to build up the church? The second point that we that I think is coming out of this passage is in verse 40. Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. 
In verse 33, Paul says that God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Okay, so we need to take this seriously. Do things in an orderly way. Paul is telling us to do that. The problem comes, as I mentioned just a couple minutes ago, trying to determine what is an orderly way. For one, it's liturgical service. For another, it's on the other extreme, charismatic, free-flowing, all-over service. In every spot in between. So the question today is, what is order? For Paul in the church of Corinth, they talk about three different things in this passage. The first thing is dealing with speaking in tongues. So he tells us what order looks like for speaking in tongues. It is two or three should speak in tongues. One at a time must be interpreted. It's really that simple. If there's not an interpreter, then don't speak in tongues. Now, Paul doesn't say speaking in tongues is wrong. He doesn't eliminate, eliminate it. He's saying in an orderly service, here's the guidelines. When it comes to prophecy, again, two or three should speak. Others should weigh carefully what is said. In other words, is this from God? Do it in turn. Don't speak over everybody. Okay? If somebody is sharing, somebody is speaking, don't just start yelling up over them because you have what you think is a better word than whoever is sharing. It is orderly. Wait your turn. We got time. There's a third thing that Paul talks about, orderly service. And this is the one that gets a little controversial. I know, speaking in tongues and prophecy, not controversial. He says, when it comes to women, they should remain silent. Whew. Ouch. Verses 33 and 34 and 35 have created a lot of intense discussion. Because Paul is saying here that women should remain silent. But the hard thing is, then when we take these words in context of the larger body of Scripture, we see other places where women are encouraged and allowed and pray and prophesy in the midst of a service, which creates confusion. Which is it, Paul? Do women need to remain silent, or can they prophesy? We need to remember, what is Paul talking about here? Ordered worship. Too many tongues, tongues that aren't interpreted, creates disorder. Too many prophecies, people speaking over each other, none of them being discerned, creates disorder. So how does 
a woman speaking during a service create disorder? Well, there are two main views of this. The first view, when talking about orderly worship, is that no woman is permitted to speak responsibly in judgment of a man's prophetic utterance. So if a man gets up and prophesy, no woman is allowed to judge that prophecy as whether it comes from God or not. Why? Because a woman is supposed to be in submission, according to the law, to her husband. The other view is this, that Paul is prohibiting a woman from engaging in a public interrogation of another woman's husband. Now, I know they sound similar, but there is a difference. One is not permitted to speak in judgment over what a man is saying. The other is more of an interrogation or a dialogue back and forth with another woman's husband. And the reason for the second viewpoint is this. One, in verse 35, remember Paul says that spe- speaking, Paul mentions, was motivated by a desire to learn. So, in the midst of the service, there was a desire to inquire, to learn. The woman is wanting to learn what is going on. The speaking that Paul is silencing is this questioning and this desire to learn more knowledge. Now, isn't it good if somebody desires more knowledge? Well, yes, but in an orderly worship, to have this dialogue back and forth to learn more, you disrupt the order of the service. Note that what Paul is not saying is, If you have something to contribute, tell your husbands when you get home. That's not what Paul is saying here. If you're inquiring about something, wait until you get home. We have to remember, again, in the first century, women were not educated like men. Reason two is the second part of verse 35 for this option is that it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church, Paul says. The Greek word here is shame. Why would it be shameful for a woman to speak in church? Christopher Forbes in his commentary writes this. There existed in Greco-Roman world in the first century a strong prejudice against women speaking in public, and especially against their speaking to other women's husband. In a society with strictly defined gender and social roles and a strong view of the rights of the man over his wife, such behavior was treated as totally inappropriate. So for view, the second view, women are free to pray and prophesy and participate in the service when they are assembled, the issue arises when there's a question that comes up and they don't understand. And so Paul's just saying, wait and inquire about that question you have when you get home 
because we have an ordered worship, and if we get into this inquiring of these questions in the midst of the order of worship, we begin to have disorder. And it is totally inappropriate for a woman to speak to another woman's husband. Again, Paul is talking about orderly worship. So the issue for us is, in our culture today, it is not shameful for a woman to speak to another woman's husband. That's not shameful. And in our culture today, women are educated. Many times there are women that are more educated of things of the Bible than the men are. So, again, what Paul's addressing is disorder. So how do we apply that for us today? Application is, in the midst of a service, if you have a question, if there's some stuff you're wrestling with, if Pastor Brad said something that messes you up or you're not quite sure what Pastor Brad says, don't jump up in the middle of service and say, Brad, what did you mean by that? That might disrupt the order of service. But wait until after the service and ask that question. So that brings this, me to another question, and that is this. What is out of order for us? We know that order is in, you know, it all depends on what you view order being. We can have disagreement over order. So how do we handle that? Well, in order to kind of help us see that maybe some of our disagreement on order um, is not new. I'm just going to show you how the way we do ordered worship today is based out of Greco-Roman culture and pagan worship. What? You realize that the style of worship has not changed in over a thousand years? Now, the, the, um, the order of, I mean, let me change that again. Style of worship has changed. Order of worship hasn't changed. So yes, we've gone from traditional to contemporary to, to whatever. But this order of coming in, sitting down, singing some songs, reading some scripture, somebody preaching and leaving, that hasn't changed in over a thousand years. <clears throat> Key component to our style of worship, it's led by professionals. People come, they sit in rows, and they just observe. God's the design is that you and I are the priesthood of all believers. When people gather, we're supposed to gather in a participatory way. Let me add some other stuff to mess you up. This architecture design started in the late 300 AD after Constantine became 
a Christian, or he made Christianity the state religion for all of Rome. And part of the thing that Greeks and Romans would do is they would have dinner gatherings with friends and people that they wanted to impress. And at the end of their dinner gatherings, they would invite a professional orator to come in and they would line up their chairs and this orator would come in and speak eloquently before them. And they would be impressed. And whoever got the best orator into their house, <coughs> they were the best. During this time, pagan worship elevated a priest or a priestess above every other person in worship. This <coughs> architecture is representative of, in, in general, this pagan style of worship where the <coughs> priest or the priestess is elevated because they did all of the sacrificing, all of the worshiping while the people were out there just observing. And over time, as this got into the church, the church began to do the same thing. The first 300 plus years, the church gathered in groups around the dinner table or in a circle, and they shared with each other, here's what God was doing in my life, here's what I've been learning. Yes, they would have a teacher who would teach, but it would be a dialogue. And then the church decided to elevate the pulpit, I'm above you, that must mean I'm the person in authority here. And then the church added seating in rows. Whether pews or chairs, and again, there's another source of, right? Pews or chairs. The funny thing is, um, I, I'm reading this, I read this book a long time ago, Pagan Christianity, where I'm getting most of this information. There's a whole chapter about pews. And the, and the funny thing that would happen with pews, from the standpoint that people would buy pews, and depending on where their pew was located, determine how important they were, and they would decorate their own pews. Next week we're going to have crafts at church. Some of you haven't moved in probably years. Here's another thing. Sunday school. Sunday school started over 200 years ago. It was a school for orphans and poor kids who had to work in factories six days a week. And so somebody said, hey, I want to on Sunday take these kids and teach them reading and writing, and they would use the Bible as their curriculum. Over 200 years ago, if you were a good Christian parent, you did not send your kid to Sunday school. Today, we remove Sunday school and you think we ended church or we, as we've talked around here many times, discipleship of our kids is the responsibility of parents. The pastor position 
I'm putting my job on the line, has been elevated beyond what God has intended. The pastor has become a priest or like a king who gives the word, leads the church, creates the vision. Compare that, okay? Compare that to Israel. What did Israel do? They wanted a king. It wasn't good enough that God led them through a series of judges. They wanted a king like everybody else. And I believe, for me, the church is no different. We want a king rather than having the king of kings lead us. I'm going to read a section from this book. Frank Viola and George Barna wrote this book, and they say, So a new style of communication was being birthed in Christian church, a style that emphasized polished rhetoric, sophisticated grammar, flowery eloquence, and a monologue. At least I got the monologue right. It was a style that was designed to entertain and show off the speaker's oratorical skills. I can't even read It was Greco-Roman rhetoric, and only those who were trained in it were allowed to address the assembly. Does that sound familiar? One scholar put it this way, the original proclamation of the Christian message was a two-way conversation, but when the oratorical schools of the Western world laid hold of the Christian message, they made Christian preaching something vastly different. Oratory tended to take the place of conversation. The greatness of the orator took the place of the astounding event of Jesus Christ, and the dialogue between speaker and listener faded into a monologue. In a word, the Greco-Roman sermon replaced prophesying, open sharing, and spirit-inspired teaching. The sermon became the elitist privilege of church officials, particularly the bishops. Such people had to be educated in the schools of rhetoric to learn how to speak. Without this education, a Christian was not permitted to address God's people. As early as the third century, Christians called their sermons homilies, the same Greek term Greek orators used for their discourses. Today, one can take a seminary course called homiletics. I took one. To learn how to preach, homiletics is considered a science applying rules of rhetoric which go way back to Greek, Greece and Rome. Put another way, neither homilies, sermons, nor homiletics, the art of sermonizing, have a Christian origin. They were stolen from the pagans, and polluted stream made to entrance into the Christian faith and muddied its waters. And that stream flows just as strongly today as it did in the 4th century. My point today in sharing all that with you is this, when we talk about having an ordered service, which is important, most of what we do today and call an ordered service does not have its origins with Christ. The second thing is, I don't think that God is looking down on us and going, God, you guys messed it up again. God has used this style for centuries, 
in powerful ways. The question is, are we building up the body? Are we strengthening, encouraging, and comforting one another? That's what the church is intended to do. You and I are the priesthood of all believers. You and I are called to the ministry of reconciliation. You and I are to go and make disciples of all people. You and I need to come here to be encouraged, strengthened, and comforted. And you and I need to come here prepared to strengthen and encourage and comfort somebody else. This is one of the reasons why, for me, um, our community connect groups after the service are such a big deal. Because our goal is that you come, you worship, we, we teach, there's, there's less of this dialogue. It'd be interesting to try to figure out how to do this dialogue better. Okay? And I'm wrestling with it. I'm not sure how. But, but after the service, you're going into your groups, and what are you doing there? You're going to strengthen, encourage, and comfort one another. Let's you and I Let's commit to be a place where we strengthen, encourage, and comfort one another. Where we're being in tune to the Spirit of God and what God is doing in and through our lives. And we're, and we're paying attention to the Spirit. Maybe what the Spirit is speaking to some of you, or maybe I have a word, there's one of our elders that I hear often, he, he sits there and he looks around and, and God points somebody out and he goes and prays for them. He, he's intentionally coming here to strengthen, encourage, and comfort. He's watching. What if we all did that? Because there's some days I come to church and I don't feel like strengthening anybody. So let us, Crossroads Church, commit to strengthen and encourage and comfort each other as the Spirit leads in our life. Let's pray. God, pour out your Spirit on this place. Let this be a place of encouragement and strengthening and comforting. Father, um, we, we want to be Spirit-led. And if there's things that we need to do to alter the way we gather together on Sunday morning, um, reveal to that to us. Create an environment where we're, we're a priesthood of all believers ministering to one another. We submit to you in Jesus' name. Amen.